All right, good morning, everyone. We're going to talk about baptism today. It's going to be great, especially the baptism of babies. All right, so we are in uh, Has American Christianity Failed by Brian Wolfmuller, and we're going to be looking at baptism here in just a minute. Let's begin. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Since we're in the heart of baptism, it makes sense to have just a little aside. Um, The two things we just did are both inherently baptismal. We made the sign of the cross and had the invocation in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's baptismal because Jesus says, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So every invocation is a reminder that we are baptismal creatures born of water and the Spirit and that we may call on God's name because we've been baptized into his name. Making the sign of the cross, of course, is done in remembrance of baptism because of what St. Paul says in Galatians 3.27, all of you who have been baptized have put on Christ. And so we make this very physical symbol reminding that we have been clothed in Christ and that the promises of baptism don't just go to our souls, but also to our bodies. That just as we are buried with Christ through baptism, we will also be raised with him physically. And then, of course, that's the first thing. And then, what's the second thing? The Our Father. To call upon God as Father is necessarily baptismal. We become His children, again, born anew, born of water and spirit, into His name, into His family. We become His children, and thus we can call upon Him as our Father. So, the Lord's Prayer is baptismal prayer of necessity. And I think that that's a helpful introduction as we pivot now to discuss infant baptism or baby baptism, because in this sense, we all cry out to God as our Father. So whether you're nine years old or 109 years old, you're still a child. You never cease to be God's child through baptism. And that can help us just see from an entirely different angle, we're not looking at scripture or proof texting or anything else, how it is that baptism can be for all ages, because God desires all ages of people to be his children. Young or old, we are all his. And so we can even see that from something as simple as the our Father. So I just simply wanted to point those two things out, because Uh, We're talking about baptism and um, both the invocation with the sign of the cross as well as the Our Father are inherently baptismal realities, prayed by us as new creations, born not of flesh and blood nor the will of our parents, but born of God through water and spirit. And Jesus says that which is spirit is spirit. And Jesus likewise says that since we have this new birth, this new ontology, this, this new being created within us, by God, that even when we die, we don't die. The only thing that dies in death is the old man and good riddance to him. All right, so jumping back into Wolf Miller's text, on page 130-131 is where we left off. Let's just hit the high points and then do a funny quote by Luther. So hitting the high points, baptism, as we saw, and if you want all the if you want all the proof text, you've got to look at the preceding Three pages where Wolfmuller lists out a number of them, not even all of them. It's hardly exhaustive, but a number of them. You'll remember that, that baptism is for the forgiveness of sins, Acts 2. Baptism is a washing away of sins, Acts 22. Baptism is what makes one a disciple, and baptism into God's name so that we share identity with him. That's Matthew 28, Mark 16, 16. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. John 3, 5, I've already quoted, you have to be born of water and the Spirit, or you cannot enter the kingdom. Romans 6, I already mentioned this too, to be um, buried with Christ through baptism into death, that we might also be raised with him. Colossians 2 compares baptism to 
a circumcision without hands. And that way I just described that when you die, the only thing that dies is the old Adam. So baptism is, one part of baptism is completed in death, the carving off of the sinful flesh. Titus 3, we see that God saves us through this washing of regeneration, renewal of the Holy Spirit that he pours out on us through Christ Jesus. So he saves us through baptism. It's part of his salvific economy. And then in 1 Peter 3, 21, we get that directly. Baptism now saves you. And the comparison is, hey, just as baptism destroyed the ancient world, that water destroyed the ancient world, it saved Noah and seven others. And so now, too, baptism saves you because you've been brought into the holy ark of the Christian church, not with Noah, but with Christ. All right, so a nice little survey. What are we going to say then? Baptism is whose work, biblically? God's work or man's work? God's work! Yeah, it's forgiveness of sins. It's new birth. It's putting his name on you. It's being buried with Jesus and raised with Jesus. It's being saved. Baptism is God's work. And then if it's God's work, is it law or gospel? Gospel. Something God does for us. We don't earn it or merit it or make it or anything else. He gives it to us. And that's the great strength of baptism, um, that it's something he does to you. And once it's done, it's done. You're his son forever. Even if you even if you walk away and go, I don't want to be his son. Well, you're just like that prodigal. And when you come to your senses and return to him, he's going to welcome you as that which you are, a son. All right, so that's probably a good enough survey. If you look at page 131, um, there's this great quote from Luther in the Large Catechism. Um, So right before we get to the section, what about the babies? Luther compares the wonderful gift of baptism to a doctor who could raise the dead. Here's Luther. Imagine there was a doctor somewhere who understood the art of saving people from death. Or, even though they died, could restore them quickly to life so that they would afterward live forever. Oh, how the world would pour in money like snow and rain. No one could find access to him because of the throng of the rich. But here in baptism, there is freely brought to everyone's door such a treasure and medicine that it utterly destroys death and preserves all people alive. So this beautiful thing that we would all desire is already given to us freely, if only we'll receive it and not despise it in the arrogance of fallen flesh. All right, let's pause there, see if you have any thoughts, questions, comments about baptism in general. Otherwise, we'll kind of launch into this question we've somewhat already answered. All good? Oh, okay, please. This is kind of off the subject, and you don't need to go down a huge rabbit trail. I'll be the judge of that. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, what was so profound when we did the baptism study, to me, uh, a couple years ago, uh, was at Christ's baptism by John. uh, It was the start of transferring the uh, sin of the world to him, to Mm -hmm. Christ, Mm -hmm. And we discussed that, and it was just really profound. So I just thought yeah, I'd mention that. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up. I had a little qualm of conscience about this, um, but I had to I had to calm myself and realize this is a book study. We're studying a book. So, um, but yes, I I think so too. Um, and I've done this from time to time. The the way I like to go through baptism um, is to start with Genesis one. Because that's the first place you find baptism. Where before God even speaks and says, let there be light, there is water with the Spirit hovering over it. There is water and Spirit. It's no coincidence that when Jesus says, you must be born from above of water and Spirit. And St. Paul in Titus chapter 3 calls this a palingenesis. um, Woodenly genesis again going back to the original innocence, to the original creation, and more, but you would have had to have been in the service earlier this morning to hear my homily on that. Uh, yeah, all the way through the Old Testament, it's baptismal. 
all the major events of Israel are baptismal. Um, think, think of uh, the great big movements of the Old Testament. Creation, the flood and new creation. What two things do you see in the flood? Well, water. And who else? Or what other image shows up there? The dove. Yeah, the ark. The dove. The dove. Okay. Water and the dove. When Jesus is baptized, what does the Holy Spirit descend like? A dove? Okay. Um, and then think of, think of Israel. When they are rescued from slavery to Egypt, what's, what's the way that they're brought out of that slavery definitively? Because Pharaoh changes his mind yet again, doesn't he? Oh. Let my people go. Okay. No, I changed my mind. Another plague. This goes on repeat like ten times. Remember this? Then finally he says go, and they go. And then he goes, you know what? I've changed my mind again. Get the chariots. Let's go get them. And so the people are pinned between the sea and the chariots. How are they ever going to get rid of this guy who constantly changes his mind and constantly pursues them? Only when God drowns hard-hearted Pharaoh and all his host in the Red Sea. And so that destruction for the wicked is the salvation of God's people. They're brought through those waters. And in it's not myself who's inventing this, but it's uh, St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 10. He calls this the, a baptism. So the major events are baptismal. When God institutes the temple, the tabernacle, every morning and every evening, the priests wash, prefiguring baptism. Remember the great big bronze basin? The Old Testament tabernacle and temple had a gigantic baptismal font. (laughs) So baptism is everywhere. Of course, you have it in the healing of Naaman, in the works of Elijah and Elisha. Water is involved in almost... It's an exaggeration, but it's involved in many of their miracles. I could do an entire Lenten sermon series just on that, which I did a couple years ago. So baptism is everywhere. And then Jesus comes. So one, one locus for baptism is just the Old Testament. And then the other that ties it all together is the one you brought up, that you can learn everything there is to know about baptism by simply focusing on one event, and that's the baptism of our Lord Jesus. Now, I won't go into the long discourse on that, you're welcome. But um, <laughs> but the baptism of Jesus contains everything. It's the entirety of the Old Testament met in him. It's the clearest revelation of the Trinity that you have in terms of the Bible. Um, it's the first and clearest. <clears throat> when Jesus comes up out of the baptismal waters. It's for the fulfilling, you know, he's baptized for the fulfilling of all righteousness. Well, he's pretty much already righteous, isn't he? So, whose righteousness is being fulfilled? Ours. All those waters that are a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Well, what's happening to to all those sins? They're being washed into the water. And then Jesus comes to John and says, Hey, I'd like to be baptized. And John's like, Are you crazy? You're the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You don't need any baptism. It's I, the sinner, who needs to be baptized by you. And Jesus says, no, permitted to be so for the fulfilling of all righteousness. What does that mean? Well, he gets in those waters and those sinful, dirty bathtub waters are poured over his innocent and holy head. And we hear the words of Isaiah 53, God laid on him the iniquity of us all. And he comes up out of those waters and God says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is the one who's come to take away the sins of the world. This is the one who's come not only to save the Israelites, but to save the Gentiles, to save all people. And then immediately as the Father reveals himself, this is my beloved Son, the Son is revealed in the Father's words. And then the Spirit descends like a dove, and you have the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now we're, we're baptized into this baptism of Christ Jesus. It's done by Christ Jesus, that's Titus 3, and it's the same baptism as Christ Jesus. And we see this because at the end of Matthew's Gospel, and what we've already quoted, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That we are joining him in that reality of the triune baptism. 
revealed in his own baptism. So to be baptized into Christ is to be baptized into his baptism. It is to receive the blessing of the Trinity and to become um, one with Jesus as he is the capital S son. We are the small s sons. And thus what the father says to him, he says to us, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And the Holy Spirit, as it descended upon him, descends upon us. How do we know that? Acts 2. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You see, so all of baptism, Old and New Testament, converges in the baptism of Jesus himself. Thank you so much for that comment. All right, that's it. That was already too long. Sorry. We're moving on. Fast forward button. (laughs) All right. What about those pesky babies? One page, page 131. Oh my goodness. All right, what does Wolfmuller say? One of the pressing questions about baptism is, who is it for? Especially, is baptism for babies? Most of American Christianity withholds baptism from babies and young children. Should we? The Bible talks about baptizing children. All right, now we're quoting Acts 2, 38, 39, and we've done this many times just seconds ago. And uh, you have to remember this is Pentecost, right after the Holy Spirit's been poured out on his church. And Peter says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Now, I would, I would argue that that last clause is of equal importance. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Notice that it's, there's not free will, there's not decision, there's not seeking. It's the Lord doing the seeking. It's the Lord doing the calling. All right? Wolfmuller continues, Baptism... And its promises are, quote, for your children, end quote. The promise of forgiveness and the Holy Spirit given in baptism is for your children. Further, children are certainly included in the, quote unquote, all nations in Jesus' institution of baptism, Matthew 28:19. The book of Acts has two examples of baptisms of households which would include father, mother, servants, and children. See Acts 16, 15 through 33. All right, so if um, if we were to frame this from large to small, you might go like this, all nations. I mean, if, even if you had that, you'd have enough, because there's no discrimination based on age, right? And then there's yet another example that says, for you and for all your children. And then you've even got another set that says, that shows that entire households are baptized. This is the ancient world where households are filled with babies. I know this is hard for us to understand, but there's no such thing as a household without babies. Um, there's, there's a constant cycle of babies in the house. Um, and we just now, as 21st century Americans who have 1.5 children, um, have a hard time understanding that. And, and we sit back and go, hmm, well, I'm not sure there were infants there because it doesn't actually say. Uh, yeah, there were. That's how life works in basically every other time and place except for our weird culture and time. So, yeah, you've got those, you've got those examples. And then, of course, you know, you could add in too, um, in, in 1 Corinthians 10, where Paul is making the argument that the Old Testament people were baptized in the Red Sea, who of them were baptized? Everybody who had reached the age of accountability went through the Red Sea. Everybody who made a free will decision went through the Red Sea. No, everybody, including the infants in their mother's arms, including the little children who had no clue what was going on. Everybody passed through the Red Sea. So yet another example of the universality of baptism is presented in the Scriptures. Now, if our theology is right, we actually don't need this anyway. <laughs> we really don't. If our theology is right and we realize that babies are sinners, in sin my mother conceived me. If we realize that everyone from birth is sinful, everyone from birth needs 
to have their sins washed away. You see, just by having those two things as facts, we don't technically even need all the other verses. If we've got that, we've got enough to know these people need Jesus and all he gives. <laughs> these people. <laughs> no, All people, no matter how young or how old they are, need everything Jesus gives. So even if we had just that, you know, Luther, hyperbole, exaggeration, trying to drive home a point, almost always. I really cherish that about him. He, um, he says, why did God give us the New Testament? He didn't need to. Everything is already in the Old Testament. Everything. He gave us the New Testament because men are wicked. <laughs> because of our unbelief and our hardness of heart to understand what the scriptures say. So God makes it even more explicit. And here's another example. Um, if we just have the basics of to be born of fleshly parents is to be part of Adam's family tree. It's to be sinful. We have to be born into a new family tree. We have to be washed of our sins. These basic principles in Christ Jesus, we already have infant baptism. We already have baptism of all ages. It's already there. We don't need anything else. But God, because he is exceedingly gracious and knows that we are exceedingly wicked and hard of heart, pours out verse after verse after verse after verse, showing us that baptism is for all, including the little ones, which we should not forbid to come to our Lord Jesus. Remember that example? We read it in our baptismal liturgy every time there's a little baby. Um, how the disciples tried to stop the mothers from bringing their babies to Jesus. And Jesus rebukes them and says, let them come for such the kingdom belongs to such as these. All right. So we've, uh, we've made our biblical case here. Let's, um, let's go on with Wolfmiller. So the top of 132, the kind of the new paragraph there, the objection to infant baptism then becomes a purely philosophical and not biblical objection. But babies don't have faith. Now, notice how the goalposts have moved. We're no longer asking, Jesus, should babies be baptized? Because he, and through his apostles everywhere, says they should. We've moved the goalposts. Can babies have faith? It's a different question. It's an entirely different question. All right. Oh, do you think they can? Yeah. Oh, good, good, yeah. Because, I mean, that's what the scripture taught. Yeah, scripture teaches us that babies can have faith. Yeah, so even though the goalposts have moved, we'll still kick the field goal and make it. Yeah, why not? I think that might not be the analogy, but, you know, yeah. When Jesus met met, uh, John the Baptist, there was, you know, going on. And, and then also it talks about when Samuel mm. was being born. Yeah. And when, yeah, and, you know. You bring up a couple great examples. So, John, so yeah, can, not only, like, like the Bible would say, well, it's kind of a dumb question to ask if infants can have faith. Maybe a, maybe a more challenging question could be, can infants in utero have faith? Can it, can you have fetal faith? And there's John the Baptist leaping in the womb saying, yes. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. So that word of God, if it can penetrate the tomb of dead Lazarus and bring him to life, do you think it can penetrate the belly of a mother? <laughs> absolutely so. Absolutely. And in fact, that's actually demonstrated in that text, by the way, because it's, um, it's the greeting of Mary. The Lord be with you. So it's the, it's the word that penetrates the womb that causes John the Baptist to leap for joy. Yeah. Uh, and then you got this beautiful picture. I can't think of a more beautiful biblical picture, honestly. This is something of the glory of heaven. You've got two women hugging each other with their two pregnant bellies pressed up against each other, and there's Jesus and John the Baptist. Oh, doesn't get any better than that. Doesn't get any better than that. Okay, so yeah, we've got great biblical example. And and yeah, we've got lots of texts we could bring to bear, and you mentioned a couple. Thank you for that. Um, I'm going to make Wolfmuller do the work here. Let's see what... What text he brings to bear on this. But yeah, the goalposts move to, well, can babies have faith or not? Which I think, frankly, already we shouldn't like concede that ground. We should just say, that's not the question. The question is, should I baptize babies? And Jesus everywhere and his apostles everywhere say, yes. So when people ask me, you know, pastor, why do you baptize babies? Because Jesus says so. But, 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 but. And then, you know, don't you, but do babies, but, 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 but. That's not, that's not the question. I'm a man under orders. I'm a servant. 
He says, baptize everyone. I go and baptize everyone. That's all I need to know. Who do I think I am? The boss? I'm not the boss. But now if you're going to bring up these objections, it is good to know that he deals with those objections as well. Okay, so um, babies don't have faith. And then Wolfmuller says, I remember talking to a friend who pastored a non-denominational congregation. He was telling me the good news of the birth of his child. Are you going to baptize your baby? I asked anxious, or obnoxiously. <laughs> he answered, no, Brian. You know we practice believer's baptism. It struck me in his answer that American Christianity does not consider babies to be believers. American Christianity excludes infants and babies from faith. Babies can't be baptized because they do not have faith. This, again, is not the teaching of the scriptures. Jesus, over and over, makes it clear that babies can and do believe. The applicable texts are Psalm 71, 5 through 6, Luke 1, 15 and 41, as well as Luke 18, 15 through 17, and then Matthew 18, 1 through 6, as well as Matthew 11, 25 through 27, Matthew 21, 15 through 16, and 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 15. And I might add this, asterisk, I recognize some texts that, that are my favorites that he hasn't listed. So this isn't an exhaustive list of scriptures um, that would teach that infants can have faith. Wolfmuller continues, Consider Jesus' warning to those who would turn the children away from him. He warns, Whoever causes one of these little ones, the Greek word, if I remember, is micron. <laughs> so great. One of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned into the depths of the sea. We do two really stupid things here. First of all, we focus on the millstone and forget everything else. We're like, ooh, that's gruesome. Um, and the other thing we do is our minds immediately go to like, okay, well, whoever like sins in regard to like pedophilia or something, they're going to hell. Which that's the other thing we commonly do in our minds with this text, which frankly the text has nothing to do with. I mean, that may be true, <laughs> but but that's not what this text is about. Okay, so what is this text about? Well, this is Matthew 18. Whoever causes one of these little ones, one of these microns, who believe in me, so there's Jesus telling us these microns have faith, to sin, but that's the word for apostasy. That's the word to become ensnared and fall away from the faith. Okay, so whoever causes one of these little ones to be who believe in me to be scandalized such as they no longer believe in me. It would be better for that person who destroys the faith of a little micron. It would be better for that person to have a millstone hung around his neck and be cast into the sea. That's what Jesus is saying. Right? So we're talking about the destruction of an infant's, a little child's faith. Yes, please. Strikes me as odd that um, non-denoms will say, um, we don't believe in abortion. Those are human. Those are God's children that that mother's caring. Mm -hmm. But they, they can take the leap and say, but they can't have faith. Mm. And I think the abortionists would welcome that kind of argument. They're, you know, they can't have faith because oh, they're not human. Not fully human. Yeah. yeah. They are fully human and they can have mm, faith. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good argument. It's, it's an interesting argument too, because by, by saying that infants can't have faith, you're saying that they have to be saved in some other way. What you're actually doing by trying to take away that, there's this difficulty in our minds because in our minds we think of faith in all the wrong ways. We think of faith as this ascent of the will, this conscious, um, I have to be able to articulate, you know, what it is that I believe or I don't believe it. 
And so we take these misunderstandings of what faith is and we impose them upon children and, and we go, well, they can't have all these things. And that strikes us as a difficulty. So we try to solve that difficulty by saying, oh, they can't have faith. But all we do in doing that is create all kinds of more. So, so what then? Uh, if they can't have faith, they can't be saved? Oh, no, they are saved. Well, how are they saved? And then you have some go, well, they're not sinful. Have you ever had a baby? Okay. And then, um, is that what the scriptures teach? You're not sinful until you reach a certain age? Is that what the scriptures teach? No, we're born in sin. Or, or you do this other thing. Well, they are sinners, but they have to be saved in some other way. Oh, oh, really? Where's that chapter and verse that tells me how babies are saved apart from faith? You see, so by resolving the one issue, there's just other issues that are created. And so we do well to resist it at all of these at all of these A, a good example, I would say, is we used to have, at Faith, we used to have classes of Good Shepherd people. And they were all, you know, either emotionally or intelligently disabled. Mm-hmm. And um, we had, I mean, I taught one of those classes. And they ha- they just demonstrated complete and other faith mm-hmm. in the most simple, childlike way. And, um, but they couldn't articulate you know, to everybody's satisfaction, mm-hmm. what they believed about this and that, but right. they did have faith, right? Right, and and, and they were account- they were age of accountability. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, the age of accountability, by the way, is in the scriptures, but it has nothing to do with circumcision in the Old Testament or baptism in the New. It has to do with the civil ordering of the nation state of Old Testament Israel. It's very similar to how we say that 18 is when you become an adult. Now, if you commit crimes, you're charged as an adult. Or, I don't know, can you smoke a cigarette anymore at 18? Or is it 21? You can vape when you're 12? Oh, goodness. Great. As a parent of young ones, I'm growing weak, faint (laughs) at the thought. No, so, yeah, but we've, I mean, so culture, society has always recognized that there's this civil demarcation, and it's a bit arbitrary, but a civil law demarcation of, now we're going to treat you as an adult. Okay, And you find that where God lays out how the nation state of Israel is going to be run politically. But it's a great mistake to take that and draw that into the theological sphere. Um, that simply is an abuse of the scriptures and then leads to all si- kinds of disaster when you do that. But um, so we can leave that aside. And I think what Wolf Mueller's point's gonna be is that, um, the way that we think about faith is not the way Jesus thinks about faith. And if we're gonna define faith as an act of the will, or a kind of set of axioms to which you agree, um, cognitively, if we're gonna define faith in this way, we're gonna exclude not only babies, but we're going to exclude people who have been in severe accidents and lost mental faculty or people who are born with birth defects. They're out. Um, what about people who are in comas? They're out. And then if we're going to be completely logical, cons- logically consistent, what about, what about you when you're asleep? <laughs> right? So, um, that, you know, there's a logical inconsistency there when they suddenly turn and say, well, no, all these others, we're going to define faith differently, but still not those pesky babies. Now, I think that this is, um, this is something why Jesus rebukes his disciples. He says, remember, you must turn and become like one of them, <laughs> or you won't enter the kingdom. And it's one of the reasons why the micron here, um, who believe in me, refers not only to little infants and to little babies being brought in the mother's arms to Jesus, but refers to all of us. We all want to be the micron that simply trusted Jesus. We all want to become as these, or we won't enter the kingdom of God. But there's something deeper at work here. What does Satan hate more than anything else in the whole world? Babies. He can't stand babies. And it goes along with it. I mean, because you can't have a baby without a pregnant woman. Those are the two things he despises more than anything. If you want to see Satan just light up with sulfurous fire, 
Why? Because that's exactly what God said would be his demise. Yeah, all the way back. Remember, he says, not to Adam or to Eve, but to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. So the enmity is between the serpent and the woman. He's terrified of the woman. He's terrified of the woman specifically because of her offspring. So there's nothing more horrific to Satan. I mean, think about it. Like from that moment forward, there's nothing more horrific to him than a pregnant woman. Because every pregnant woman is a great threat to him that that baby that comes forth from her womb is going to be the one that crushes his head, undoes sin, undoes death, casts him out of this realm forever. So Satan is, Satan is absolutely terrified of and despises pregnant women and babies. Okay. This is why then um, we see in our day and age, and, and in every day and age, widespread hatred of pregnant women and babies, widespread abortion across cultures, um, child sacrifice once the babies are born. Um, we see all of these things as instantiations of that vitriolic hate that Satan has for uh, the woman and her child. So, um, how does this translate then? If Satan, as, a, by, as an extension of this, can keep infants from being baptized, he's all about it. And that's why they're singled out as a class. I mean, that's why we're not sitting here talking, huh, should geriatrics be baptized? No! Because Satan doesn't care about geriatrics in that sense. He specifically hates babies. He can't stand babies and pregnant women. So everything is hell-bent on destroying these. And, of course, he hates the rest, too. I mean, he wants geriatrics to go to hell as much as anybody else. But there's something so pointed um, in his heart toward babies and pregnant women that at every turn he wants to keep them from life, if he can, and keep them from salvation. So, once you kind of understand the broader game at work and the players at work and the things that they um, like in the case of God or despise in the case of Satan, you start to see all of this in the right way. And you start to see why it is, you know, it's kind of the same thing of like, why is there all this heat when it comes to baptism? Why is there all of the, why are there all of these attacks when it comes to the Lord's Supper? Could it be that these are the very means and ways by which God saves sinners and brings them in? So if you were Satan, what would you attack? You're not going to attack something that has nothing to do with it. You're not going to come up with some, you know, esoteric thing like, oh yeah, well, I don't think God created birds, so let's create a heresy over that. No, you would never do that because it doesn't have anything to do with anything. But where are you going to attack? You're going to attack the very place where God is creating and sustaining faith and bringing out a new creation of sons of God who will eventually trample you overfoot and crush you under their heels as well, as the scriptures say. So that's where you're going to attack. And because you were destroyed by the woman and her child, that's where you're going to attack. And so once you kind of understand these things, you see how it's all of a piece and you see how, you see why the controversies are the way they are. You understand them from a satanic viewpoint. And then enlightened with that knowledge, you can resist this and you can look at fellow Christians and, you know, in gentleness, because what do fellow Christians think who deny infant baptism and that kind of thing? I mean, they, it's, it's simply that they don't know. They've been taught that this is the way the theology works. And this is the way. So we want to be gentle with that. We want to extricate them from that. We want to get them to see, um, in a spirit of gentleness and humility, what's actually at stake. What God's trying to do and what God's saying. What Satan's trying to do and what he's saying. And then evaluate, evaluate the theology accordingly. And if that means you need to repent, well then, welcome to the club. Every last one of us have things of which we need to repent. We need to change our minds, turn our hearts, and reorient them towards God and His Word. In fact, that's kind of a way of thinking about theology. Theology is continual repentance. Because I'm turning away from my own stupid, sinful 
thoughts and desires to those thoughts and desires which are God's. So the whole process of theology is a whole process of continual repentance and seeking to be conformed into the image of his word. All right, well, enough on that, maybe. Um, But yes, what we're going to see if we look at the scriptures honestly is we're going to see that uh, Jesus himself, who better, but then lots of other scriptures tell us that babies can have faith. Um, Maybe one quick analogy to this. Uh, And and this is... um, this is just a, a kind of an earthly physical analogy, but I think it'll, I, I think it'll demonstrate a point. So when, um, with both of my kids, it was this way. Maybe with your kids, it was this way. But when they were, when they were really little, before they could even talk, you know, mom would have them in her arms and then she'd hand them off to a stranger and the baby would instantly start crying. Okay. And then stranger would hand it back to mom and baby would instantly be calm. All right. Now what's going on there? What's going on there? Could, can the baby, is the baby like, can the baby cognitively articulate? Well, you see, these are foreign arms and I don't really trust these foreign arms because I don't know them or whereas my mother's arms are trustworthy because they're the arms I brought. That's the heartbeat I recognize. That's the vo- voice. I No, a baby can't articulate any of that. A baby can't think in those terms or concepts, let alone speak about them. But is it not nonetheless true that there's a, there's a deep human sense in which the baby trusts mom, even though the baby could never articulate that or even cognate that, and doesn't trust the strange arms? Okay, that's the analogy of faith. Faith is deeper than your ability to cognate or your ability to speak. Faith is a trust that goes down to the very depths of the soul. Faith is written in our hearts by the Holy Spirit where there's nothing deeper. Deeper than all the worries and fears and doubts and sins and everything else is this faith that I belong to the Father. And He is my Father. And I'm safe in Him. And that is with us whether we go through brain injury or dementia, whether we're asleep, half awake. It doesn't matter what our cognitive abilities are. Faith goes far deeper than that and is something essential written within us by the Holy Spirit. And so it is for infants. So we've got this very human example, right, of a baby who cannot cognate or speak and yet it's so. And that is exactly how we think that infants have faith. It goes deeper. It's John the Baptist leaping for joy. Okay, He's not going to say, well, I heard, I actually heard these Hebrew words that Mary was speaking and, um, they resonated with me because, you know, I knew that I was in the presence of my, no, he's not going to be able to cognate or articulate any of this. Faith goes and penetrates to the very depths and foundation of the human soul. All right. So that's what we're going to see biblically. And, um, that's one of the ways we can think about this and not get hung up on, on all the other nonsense. All right, so if you look at the great big print on 132, Wolf Mueller says, if our definition of faith excludes infants and children, then our definition of faith is different than Jesus. Different than his definition of faith. Wolf Mueller continues, quote-unquote believer's baptism and quote-unquote infant baptism are not exclusive categories. The Lutheran Church does not baptize infants because they have faith. You know, you can see the point here. Um, Jesus doesn't say to his apostles or to his pastors, hey, go out and baptize all nations as long as they have faith, as long as you can detect faith. In an adult, that might be easy because they can cognate, they can speak. But what am I supposed to do if I've got a detective, a baby has faith? My baby faith detector is broken. They gave it to me from seminary, but I lost it, found it, and it was broken. No, that's that's not something God asks us to do. He doesn't say discern faith in an infant or a little child and then baptize. He says, baptize. Okay? So, um, yeah, believer's baptism and infant baptism are not exclusive categories. The Lutheran Church does not baptize infants because they have faith. Infants are baptized first because of the command of Jesus to baptize the nations. And second, because of his promise that this gift is for our children. 
but we do trust that the Holy Spirit creates and sustains faith in the Word, and that Jesus has bound up his word of promise to the gift of baptism. All right, let's go, let's go just a little further. So years ago, Wolf Miller writes, I was presenting to a group comprised mostly of Southern Baptist seniors. We were talking about Philippians and the distinction between law and gospel. But the people in the class were very interested in the Lutheran teaching about baptism. Don't you Lutherans baptize babies? Yes, indeed, I answered. How can you do that if they haven't made a decision for Christ? We think of baptism differently, I responded. The Baptist faith and message teaches that baptism is our first act of obedience, that it is our work, our action. We Lutherans understand that baptism is God's work, his gift of forgiveness to us. Just about the only thing babies are good at is receiving gifts. Have you noticed that? They don't contribute a whole lot. I'm still waiting for mine to. Seven and nine, and I'm still kind of trying to turn that corner. Could you guys take out the trash? Clean up after yourselves. <laughs> yeah, in fact, that's kind of a fun thing to think about, that the office of child, and think of this, a baby's born to you, what can that baby do for you? Nothing. What can it do for itself? Nothing. So there's something unique about the office of infant where it is an office specifically to receive. It has to receive everything. You know, when you get a baby, you kind of wish there was an instruction manual sometimes, but when you get a baby, you know, you have to feed it, you have to clothe it, you have to clean it up, you have to bathe it, you have to house it, you have to shelter it. What does the baby do? It just receives. That's it. Now can you see why Jesus says, unless you turn and become as one of these, you cannot enter the kingdom. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. As children of God, we all have to receive everything from his fatherly hand. That's the point. All right, so um, baptism is God's work. His gift of forgiveness to us, just about the only thing babies are good at, is receiving gifts. To impress the point, I asked, how many of you are grandparents? The entire room raised their hands. Okay, what would you say if I told you not to give gifts to your grandchildren? Their first Christmas, no gifts. Their first birthday, no gifts. In fact, I don't want you to give them any gifts until they reach the age where they can ask for gifts and truly appreciate them. <laughs> a dear old grandmother sitting in the back said with a shaky voice, Point made! <laughs> uh, baptism is God's gift to us. In baptism, God delivers his promised forgiveness the very same forgiveness won by Jesus in his death. By the death and resurrection of Jesus and by his institution, baptism saves. Okay, um, yeah, quick quote from Luther here in the large catechism. Therefore, every Christian has enough in baptism to learn and do all his life. For he has always enough to do by believing firmly what baptism promises and brings. Victory over death and the devil. Forgiveness of sins. God's grace, the entire Christ, and the Holy Spirit with his gifts. In short, baptism is so far beyond us that if timid nature could realize this, it might well doubt whether it could be true. Yeah, absolutely so. The cosmic action that is taking place in baptism is simply hidden to our eyes. You know, there we are on a Sunday morning sitting in the pews, knowing in our, in our hearts that that's what's going on, and yet completely unable to see it with our eyes or grasp it all with our reason. So there's this beautiful thing, too, um, where God has us begin this life in complete dependence upon him. Um, and not him indirectly, but him through the hands of others. And as a generality, it's not always the case, as a generality, the cycle of fallen life is such that we get opportunity to experience that all over again. <laughs> you go on, you go on long enough. So 
so God, God begins with you receiving everything from his hand. And then you think you gain some sense of independence and control. But you start to realize that all of that's somewhat illusory anyway. And it's a kind of stewardship that never goes right unless he blesses it anyway. And then he takes you all the way back to the point at which you're dependent upon others once again. So in the words of T.S. Eliot, you return to the beginning, but know it for the first time. And that's a painful process of the, as we get older, of the Lord stripping the things that he's given away from us, including our independence and our ability to care for ourselves. And, every, and we find ourselves completely dependent upon others once more. But now we can realize that it's all gift. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And he promises to give everything and more back to us in the resurrection of our flesh and the new heavens and the new earth. But this is the arc and aspect of our lives and our lives as our, our learning, our um, academy of faith that God puts us through, um, where we, where we see through every stage of our life that it's He who has us in His fatherly hands. It's He who has created us. It's He who redeems us. It's He who gives us every good gift of body and soul. And so that when everything's stripped away, we still have the one thing necessary. Him. And then from there, He flowers forth and pours out abundant grace and blessings upon us that far exceed those of this world. All right. So, yeah, let's baptize those babies. And let's all rejoice in our baptisms as well. Now, we're going to uh, turn and pivot and talk about the Lord's Supper. But before we do, let's see if you have anything about, um, anything you want to talk about baptism in general, um, infant baptism in specific. Uh, if you've um, run into any arguments or want to make any counterpoints to what I've said, happy to entertain those as well. Um, safe venue to do so. Okay, I see one, and then we'll go over there. Please. As I recall, during the process of baptism, <clears throat> we ask, do you want to be baptized? Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> they don't have to have faith, but they have to show a will uh, to want to be baptized. Mm. And if you could comment on that and the context with the infant, that the congregation answers that question for the infant. Yeah, this is, this is less a theological issue and more a logistics issue, right? You've got a hymnal. The hymnal can only have so many pages. And, um, you don't really want to have like, a, a right for infants and a right for adults. What might that do? Well, as if there were two categories of human beings and, um, and that's a bad thing. So you want one service that fits for all. But you want to cater that towards adults because the infants can be fit under that because there is really no distinction. There's only a distinction in ability. So um, as you go through that service, you can see that there's, for example, a renunciation of the devil and a confession of the creed. But this whole thing is done corporately as well. I mean, it's the whole body of Christ is gathered there. And so... Adults are given to make that renunciation of Satan and then confess faith in God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then at the end of that questioning, do you desire to be baptized? You can see how all of this is contoured toward the adult who can respond. But it's not necessary. And in the case where there's one who cannot speak for himself, well, are there members of your body that can't speak for themselves? Yeah, my finger has a really hard time saying anything articulate. It requires the mouth. And in the same way, when we have members, whether they're very young or very old, whether there's some sort of cognitive deficit or impairment, we as the whole body speak together and make confession where they themselves can't make confession. So I know it sounds a little strange to our ears, do you desire to be baptized? We ask a little infant. And the little infant has no cognition of what's going on or what's being asked or what's meant. But the whole body of Christ answers and says, yes, we have, we have no reason whatsoever to believe that this child doesn't have faith, that this child doesn't desire to be baptized. And we know that God blesses little ones anyway. Okay. 
Yeah, so that's kind of where that comes from. It's more of a practical thing than a theological thing. Just a quick follow-up then. So an adult wanting to be baptized expresses that. Mm -hmm. They're baptized, and then the catechesis, uh, the teaching happens afterwards, the discipling, or Mm. is there a discipling process that happens before baptism? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, you've probably noticed this about babies and, and little kids. They absorb and they have, they have very few of the same hang-ups we have in regard to faith. Catechizing my children is so easy. By the way, catechizing unbelievers who convert to Christianity is infinitely easier than catechizing someone who's been in Christianity their whole life and then converts to Lutheranism. Why? Because you're just dealing with all these hang-ups. Adults have way more hang-ups than children have. And then Christians converting to Lutheranism have way more hang-ups than atheists converting to Christianity. So all all the church has done over 2,000 years is recognize that there's a great difference in terms of the people who are coming for baptism, and there's a difference in how we treat them. Let me give you a biblical example. Um, To whom is uh, Peter preaching at Pentecost when he says, uh, they're all cut to the heart, and they say, what should we do? And he says, well, you need to take a 12-week instructional class And then, if you believe and affirm everything that you've been taught, then be baptized. No, he says to them, repent and be baptized. Why? Who are they? These are all Jewish people who have been gathered in. They know the scriptures, and the last dot that they need has been connected. This Jesus is the Christ, the one whom you crucified. And that dot's connected. There's no further catechesis that's needed. Baptize them. So we find adults that are like that. There's no catechesis that needs to be done here or that can't be done after baptism. Baptize. What's another example? Even a Gentile who falls into this camp and category. The Ethiopian eunuch that Philip baptizes on the, the chariot. But why is, you know, he's not, it's not as if he's like some guy off the street who just learned about, what's he doing? He's reading Isaiah! An Ethiopian reading Hebrew, possessing a scroll, and asking of whom this these lines of of of, uh, of of Isaiah are speaking. Is he speaking of himself or of another? So, what does Philip have to do in that case? Simply connect the dots. I mean, if this guy knows Hebrew, he knows the scriptures. Yeah. So all he has to do is connect the dots. Speaking of Jesus, who was crucified. Hey, there's water. What prevents me from being baptized? Done. Okay. But now, what if pastorally you find people who um, don't have any acquaintance with the scriptures? This is where historically the church has said there's going to be a period of catechesis. And some instances that was quite long. And we might look askance at this, but I don't think we ought to. Um, they made this decision. They said, look, this is the way the culture is and the way we need to answer that culture. It's going to be a multi-year process before you're actually baptized where you're not only catechized, but you're pulled out of the sinful lifestyle um, that's inherent in the pagan culture around you. Okay, so um, different strokes for different folks. Not everybody fits the same. And we pastors, um, as we run into these instances, um, we treat it. So there's some adults we might baptize right away. There's some that we might take through a lengthy process. There's some that might go through that process multiple times before they say, yeah, I, I get all this, I believe all this. And we'd say, great. Let's let's have you be baptized. I just looked at this sentence on page 133 where it says, we think of baptism differently. And I responded, the Baptist faith and message teaches that baptism is our first act of obedience. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of the parents. Are they obeying Christ and doing an act of obedience by baptizing their children? Mm. Yeah, of course. I mean, from a parental angle, absolutely, you're doing what is your duty as a to baptize a child. I mean, again, there's so many parallels that can be wrought, and we're just we're out of time here. But I'll make this last comment. There's there's so many parallels that can be wrought. You know, we as parents, you you take the newborn home and you don't say, okay, eating is a really important thing. Why don't you let me know when you're ready to eat, when you choose to eat? Okay. So the baby, you know, you go, you go a few hours and the baby's screaming its head off. No, 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 no. I need you to articulate in words that you're ready for this. Of course we don't do that. And even when they get a little older, 
I don't want to take a shower. Go take a shower. Not an option. It's happening. Get up there and go. All right. I'll throw you in there myself if I have to. All right. What, what are we doing? What are we, what are we doing crushing the free will of these? <laughs> no, the, the parental duty is what? To do what's best for our children, whether they know it or not, whether they agree with it or not, whether they can articulate their need or their desire for it or not, we do it for them because it's what's best for them. We do the same thing and with, uh, Little children, non-denominational parents or Baptistic parents, they don't, they don't say to their, they don't say to their children, I'm not going to bring you to church because I don't want to bias or taint your free will. I'm not going to bring you to church or teach you anything about Christ until you reach the age of accountability. No, that's not what they do. Right away from the very get-go, they're reading Jesus stories and telling them about Jesus and everything else. Why? You want to bias your children towards what's true. Whether that's Christ or math. <laughs> right? You want to teach your children and give to your children everything you can. Baptism just fits naturally in there. It's just one more gift that Christ gives you as parents to give to your children. So baptize your kids. Same way you bathe your kids. Same way you teach your kids about Christ. Baptize them. It's all the same piece. So yeah, from a, from a parental perspective, yeah, do this. And that is a, that is an act of obedience, so to speak. All right. We're over time. The Lord be with you. <laughs>